0: Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Rap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art, and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Cooler Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. More than 300 criminologists, lawyers and other academics from across Australia have signed an open letter calling for urgent action to address the overcriminalisation and over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This morning, I'm joined by Eddie Sinnett, a Wambawamba person and Centre Manager for the Indigenous Law Centre at the University of New South Wales, to talk about the letter and its demands. Eddie, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Not a problem. Thanks for having me on.
0: So just to kind of start out, tell me a bit about this open letter, why now and what does it hope to do?
1: Yeah, so I guess um, the why now, you know, the last couple of months with the momentum that's been following from the international incidents around Black Lives Matter and the you know, horrendous murder of, of George Floyd and how that was picked up around the world and then how the movement was picked up here in Australia, but then also the light that that casts back on to ourselves as a country, to the um, long you know existing issues that we have here in this country with the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and incarceration and deaths in custody the protest movement that we saw here and also hitting on some of the issues that have been there for a long time, but also some of the more recent things that have come up. There's been a recent Australian Law Reform Commission report on Indigenous incarceration and criminalisation, recent reports into related issues around youth suicide, especially through WA, and then also the Royal Commission into Youth Detention in the Northern Territory stands out as well. So I think it was an important time you know, for a lot of people and and those that signed this letter that do research this, that too often some of these things are put in the too hard basket or more research needs to be done or, you know, we're not quite sure what to do. But here's three hundred, you know, experts and professionals in the field saying we absolutely know what can be done and we have the ability and the you know, the knowledge and the expertise to be able to do that now and, and here's some of the things that we can do.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the Royal Commission into the Youth Justice. There were, you know, many key findings that came out of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody in 91. There were also key recommendations that were not implemented. I guess I want to ask what was something that could have been a good step in the right direction at least, and to kind of follow on from that, what's the point of a Royal Commission?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I guess this is the kind of cycle, not just in Indigenous affairs, but, you know, politics more broadly where we have these, um, reports and then politicians make decisions for, you know, ideological reasons or political reasons other than what should just be best practice and people's and people's lives and in Indigenous affairs, we feel that I think you know particularly um, harshly because it does in it does you know end up as a death sentence for some people. So some of the very simple and practical measures that um, the Royal Commission for Death and Custody way back in the nineties recommended. Such as custody notification services, um, you know, not charging people for being drunk in public. You know, we're still going through inquiries at the moment from people that have passed away in custody recently, because um, not just police, but you know, criminal justice and state governments mm. and territory governments have failed to implement um, those recommendations for so long. And um, I guess it's the you know the kind of death by report kind of thing. We, we keep getting these reports, we keep getting these recommendations, but we don't have the, you know, political will often. Well, well, the politicians aren't, you know, expressing the political will or the ability to be able to produce a structural change. And when we come down to, well, what's the point of, <laughs> of a royal commission or of an inquiry, um, they can be very good, they can be very effective, they... Um, you know, there's a, the, they're designed in a particular way. They have special powers that other inquiries don't have. And, um, but they can also be very limited. And anyone that's kind of paid any attention to the Royal Commission space recently, um, you know, we've had a lot, but even the ones recently, there's one going on at the moment into aged care, mm. um, you know, into... The youth detention one in the Northern Territory at the territory level, they can be limited by their terms of reference and by what they can inquire into. And then at the end of the day, also, um, they can't really, you know, they can recommend charges, they can recommend changes, they can recommend a whole lot of things, but they don't have the power themselves to actually go and make those changes. So it falls back onto that same system and those same politicians um, to actually have to, you know, exercise the will or the findings of the Royal Commission or of the Inquiries to actually be able to develop change. And that's where a lot of these things structurally fall down. Mm.
0: There was a campaign um, in the last little while to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10, which in Australia is 10, um, to 14. And from my understanding, the call was not taken on. Can you just give me a little bit of an overview of what the result or the outcome of that was?
1: Yeah, so at a recent meeting of all of the state and territory and and the federal attorney generals, who, you know, there's through the kind of things that we've seen happening with the coronavirus kind of stuff lately with the national cabinet, but Mm -hmm. through the COAG arrangements and the relationships that they have, um, you know, over the last couple of decades, we've seen more and more of a uniform approach to, to law reform across the country. Um, which which is a good thing because it you know enables um, these reforms to go through, um, but unfortunately this is one of these areas where there's been unwilling to act, and I think it's important to point out too, you know it's not just as though a bunch of people down here in Australia are jumping up and down about something and saying hey we should change this, it's it's in, you know that. The age of criminal responsibility um, comes from, or well, the recommendations for it comes from all of the best practice evidence mm-hmm. and research. It's embedded into international law and mm-hmm. the different principles, you know, through the United Nations and the different treaties and um, working groups and all of the different documents that people were signatories to. So we're really kind of lagging behind um, on on what that should be set at. And I think the ACT is the only jurisdiction that, since then, has gone ahead and. Um, moved on this themselves, and have, and have increased that to 14. But I guess one of the you know frustrating things out of that is that raising that age has been one of those key recommendations of all of these reports over these years, and one of the responses, or one of the key responses from the attorney generals um, at that meeting where they um, decided not to, to to make a movement on this was that more needed to be done to investigate um, the alternatives or what would be put in place or, you know, how we can address that. And mm. Again, like I was saying before, um, we absolutely know what can be done and, and how it can be done now. And, there, you know, there are experts, there are people working in the field, there are international experts um, that that know that, you know, raising age criminal responsibility and then supporting um, our youth, especially through other avenues other than, you know, entering them into the criminal justice system through a punitive regime um, can produce much better outcomes.
0: Yeah. And there's also so much evidence to suggest that once you have entered the system, it is just a revolving door, right? You come in and then you're out all through youth justice and then into adult. And that is something that is very well researched, very well documented in this country and many other places Around the world, and so it is. You know, when you decide that this is not something that has been investigated enough or researched enough, or we need to kind of wait, it really is, as you said. You know, death by investigations, death by yeah, it, you know research. Because at the end of the day, we know what the outcomes are.
1: Absolutely, and we're not talking. You know, just recent discoveries and research or best practice. And like, you know, this is decades of work around the world that indicates what you know, what the best outcomes are and what the best um, approach to this is. But sadly, um, you know, I'm based in Queensland at the moment and we've seen from the opposition government here and narrative about tough on crime again and we mm-hmm. saw it in the recent Northern Territory election. Um, even though, you know, I'm and I'm not saying either side of the major parties, you know, is there any better on this and um especially in the Northern Territory, the Labour government has really sat on their hands with the recommendations of the um, Royal Commission for youth detention. But even there the um the opposition, the main opposition party was running on a tough on crime um narrative again as well. And we just know, you know, again, for decades, the evidence, um, you know, from the ground, from the way that it impacts our families, from the continued um like you said about, you know, once you get entered into it's very hard to get out and it becomes much easier to stay in there. Um, it just doesn't work, and all of the all of the best practice evidence, all of the research points in the same direction as well. And um, yeah, that's where it comes down to some of those points that were in the letter about justice reinvestment, yeah. and um, not just diversionary programs, but actually thinking about what is the point of a criminal justice system, and what is it that we're actually trying to achieve as a society, and why are we so focused? on punishment, Mm -hmm. Um, and it seems to be politically we are so focused on punishment and making people pay for what they've done, rather than actually supporting people to be able to live better lives.
0: Yeah, and understanding what context in which people come to the justice system in, right, understanding where they've come from and what experiences they've had and why those experiences have occurred and the ways in which the government um, has failed them before they even entered. So is it about yeah. reimagining what justice in a justice system looks like? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about defunding or rolling back funding for police and corrections?
1: Um, there There is definitely and I know there are definitely movements in Australia and people that support you know a full defunding of mm-hmm. the police. Um, the way I see it and the way I understand it and I think the way that it's represented um, by by this letter or you know the, the literature and, and the experience on this. Is about um, you know putting the funding that's put into those areas into different areas with an emphasis on you know not punishment, not even the old kind of you know there's this older emphasis on well, what is a prison or a criminal justice system supposed to be for is it for punishment or is it for rehabilitation mm. but, you know like we emphasized before it 's about getting to our community and to our young people before they even have contact with the criminal justice system. Because for a lot of you know our youth and for a lot of our people, and you know not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, a lot of people's experience of criminal justice system across the board. Once you get contact with it, you know it's very hard to get out, and then you get embedded into that system afterwards. So it's that kind of multi-layered approach. And the letter emphasises also um, just how much money has been increased mm-hmm. in the policing budgets across the country over the last year. So it's not even a you know, a matter of taking away from the police. It's about, well, what are we expecting police to do in society mm-hmm. and why are we expecting them to do that? Should these things be done differently? You know, should it be a community safety approach? Um, and, you know, this is across the board. And you can look at any other areas, whether it's about... Um, you know, drug and alcohol abuse, or whether it's um, yeah, it's a medical condition rather than a criminal condition, a community safety issue, mental health, family violence, all of these kinds of things. And what we've seen over the last kind of two decades is a massive increase in police budgets and in criminal justice and punitive measures and mandatory sentencing and this tough on crime kind of approach to what effectively are community safety and community health issues and that should be dealt with in that way rather than through a punitive criminal justice system.
0: Yeah and we see that so much here in Victoria there are so many cops in this state like it is absolutely next level and even since you know this uh COVID-19 pandemic started the way that our community in this state has been kind of organised, has essentially been, we've kind of been policed into staying at home and people are being, well, you know, Victorians are being fined more than anyone else in the country um, for COVID-19 measures. And, you know, there are so many police officers kind of just walking around in big groups in this state and that has really changed, as you said, in the last 20 years. It's We've definitely absolutely seen that. What do first steps look like? For something like you know, reform, abolition, whatever, whatever we want to call it.
1: I um, I mean, like, people might be dismissive of it, but I'm. I'm a big believer in, you know, there's a bit of a make-off. Right? You know, we need politicians and the people that are in charge and the decision making positions to, to actually recognise the issue genuinely and, and take on board the research and, and the evidence that is there and, um, beyond the lip service that they give it at the moment. And, you know, so that would be standing up and taking on board the recommendations like most of them do already, but then actually committing the resources and funding, you know, implementing that. Mm. And, you know, immediately it can be a freeze on the increase of funding into those particular areas. It can be a commitment to be able to... Um, address some of these issues and about how we divest or you know, how we transition or transform those funds into other areas. But it can also be actually taking seriously, the research that's put forward as well. So most recently, the Pathways report from the Australian Law Reform Commission, extensive report nationally that made some serious recommendations across the board that was kind of universally ignored by governments and even, you know, for Indigenous Affairs specifically recently with the new revamped Closing the Gap targets. Mm -hmm. Originally they were leaked aiming for 2093 as incarceration parity, which is just insane. Mm -hmm. Um, they, They were since kind of Brought down to 2063, which is still 40 years. You know, if we're talking about the age of criminal responsibility being 10, well, you know, there's four generations of our youth mm-hmm. that have basically, you know, the government and the people that are signing up to these closing the gap targets, accepting that, you know, that's the reality. Four more generations of our young people at age 10 are going to enter into this system. And it's just not good enough. So, you know, actually getting serious about that and. It's not just indigenous groups and others that you know were heavily critical of those closing the gap targets, some pretty conservative institutions in the legal professionals as well. So people like um, the New South Wales Bar Association, all of the law societies, all expressed their concern mm. at those closing the gap targets and reiterating what this what this letter does as well about the Australian Law Reform Commission report and those steps that can be made. So. know, the ideas and the ideology that goes into actually making these decisions, taking on board that research about what it is we're actually trying to achieve and transitioning a lot of these, the way that a lot of these issues are seen from, you know, punitive criminal justice systems into the more community safety and health level, and then also empowering communities themselves to be able to make decisions and be able to run these things. And all of that requires, you know, a freezing on police funding or funding for Mm -hmm. the kind of things that we're talking about and then funding these alternative pathways to be able to produce these. It's hard because at the end of the day, a lot of this just does require dollars mm-hmm. and you know, resources and anyone working in this field will understand, you know, we can do as much as we like and a lot of us are in our communities, you know, run ragged, being able to deal with these issues and support our communities in the best way, but without the proper funding and resourcing, it just becomes, you know, a monumental task that is sometimes more often than not too much, Yet we see, you know, policing budgets increasing massively to the um, there are almost tens of billions of dollars that they have been over the last uh, decade.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, enough money in this country. This country is incredibly wealthy, and this we, is something. Yeah, we are...
1: I think that's one of the great myths as well, and it's one of these political things that Absolutely. comes up a lot too that we've seen with the coronavirus. We are a very wealthy company. Very. Uh, company, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I've adapted the, the government's um, company <laughs> logic now. Yeah. Um, we're uh, a
0: very it's, wealthy it's, business. Uh, Australia yeah, is a very wealthy business.
1: <laughs> we're all consumers. We're all on the... Um, but it's a it's a matter of priority and what we value. You know, even if anyone's following limitedly what's happening in aged care lately, like... You know, aged care has been a nightmare for a very long time, and um, the, the review and the, the commission that's going into that. But it absolutely is a matter of you know, priority and value and what we value as a country. And um, Unfortunately, at the last election, we seemed to value franking credits and people yeah. being able to own second and third houses yeah. rather than you know, people being able to have their basic human rights to, to live and to have shelter and to not be killed by the police or not be arrested for, you know, all these different kind of things. So we we are a very wealthy country that can afford these
0: things. It's just a matter of choosing to, and as you said, prioritising it. Eddie, Sinet, thank you so much for your time, for the work that you're doing and, and for all your insights.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Eddie Sinnott is a Wamba person and centre manager of the Indigenous Law Centre at the University of New South Wales. He was involved in an open letter that was signed by more than 300 criminologists, lawyers and other academics from across Australia. And it was calling for urgent action to address the over and over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Very excited this morning to be joined by V. Ayan Shidua from 3CR's Diaspora Blues, also did Tuesday Breakfast, Women on the Line, Accident Women, just a general star. Ayan is many things. She's a radio producer, presenter. And probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, but I would never tell her that. She's also very strangely obsessed with horror films and is the biggest advocate for 90s R&B in the entire continent. And she's going to take me through a few things she's been enjoying and thinking about in the last month. Hello.
2: read once again, you set me up to fail. <laughs> what is with the introduction? Oh, my God. Your listeners have high expectation now. I don't think I can deliver, babe.
0: Absolutely, you can deliver. You have lots of amazing insights. And just to kind of be a little bit sappy about it, it is, it is true, like, you know, we talk all the time and we've known each other for a long time, but you definitely were one of the most kind of key people who introduced me to a lot of, like, black thinking, international black thinking, local black thinking, art, literature, all of that stuff. So you mm. definitely do hold a very important place for me and for a lot of other people. But anyway. Hmm.
2: Also, anyway. You, know how, you know how I am with compliments. I know. So you, you said like this. There's also that. you like, mm,
0: that. Uh, Yeah. I'm yeah.
2: like, all right, that's nice and everything. Let's move <laughs> along. Let's
0: move on. Okay. So you've been doing, you've been watching a bunch of stuff and listening to a bunch of stuff and thinking about a bunch of stuff as we all have been given that we're in stage four restrictions for the rest of our lives. And the mm-hmm. first thing that you, I saw you talk about was this Michaela Cole TV show, I May Destroy You. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about it and why you started watching it.
2: Girl, so uh, I May Destroy You, just a quick premise for um, any of your listeners who haven't watched the show. So it's based, so the story is about Arabella. She is a British Guinean author and it's important to note that she's Ghanaian because they do mention that throughout the show. So anyways, Arabella, she's in the middle of writing her second book. I think you're supposed to, well, no, you know that her first book was a success. And mm-hmm. this second one has a lot of like, there's a lot of excitement around it. So anyways, she's kind of taking her time and finding any excuse not to do what. Her friend invites her out for a drink. She goes out and um, sometimes during the night her drink is spiked mm-hmm. and the next day she doesn't remember anything of read like nothing. Yeah. But then there are like little flashbacks and in those flashbacks, she's in a toilet stall and there's a guy standing over her and um, so she kind of, she realises as we do, as we do, as viewers at the same time, that she was assaulted mm-hmm. and um, even though the assault, is the story that kind of glues the show. There's other stuff that they talk about, um, things like friendship, social media. So that's a little bit of a premise of the show. And the reason I watched that was excuse me, but Michaela called oh, she's a funny Chewing the Gum. World. She is one of the you know, I remember here I remember when I watched Choing Gum God. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I have never seen a show about not just about black people, but black people set in the housing commission mm. so the estates. I think they called their Estates in the UK. Mm-hmm. And just how weird and awkward she is, the sweaters that she wears. It was just something I had never seen before. Um, so when I heard that she was making I May Destroy You, I was like, okay, I need to watch it. But I had no idea. I don't know. For some reason, when I watched the trailer, I had no idea it would be about this. It would be yeah. like this, is, this was the content. Um, but, yeah, so it's five episodes. It's produced. Um, Actually, it was – she co-directed nine episodes. She also wrote the um, story. Um, She even – apparently, there was, like – she made 191 drafts. So, yeah, she put in a lot of effort.
0: She – Michaela Cole, to me, is, like, such a shining light. Like, she is so – Um, funny. And that's like one really important element of this show. I've watched two episodes because Ayan was like, just watch two episodes before we do this interview. Um, And I'm hooked. I'm also like super devastated and upset by some of the circumstances of the story, but can't help but like crack up every five minutes because it is also really, really funny. And she has this like amazing comedic timing and her writing is like just funny enough to kind of, Get you to chuckle, but not does not make a mockery of a situation or of a person. So, like, with Chewing Gum, it doesn't – the humour for me did not make a mockery um, of her character. It was just – it was, but it, but it was funny, right? And there's, like, a very, very fine line. And oftentimes, and this is something that we've seen and we've probably spoken mm. about, when black characters are drawn and they're not written by black people or, or for me, black women, but, um, often that's not what happens. You're made yeah. fun of or you are, like, the dumb character or you're this or you're that. But actually, mm-hmm. you know, her her characters are so sophisticated and um, so real and you learn to love them so deeply.
2: Yeah, and, and even with Chewing Gum, what I liked about it was... It consists, I mean, I get why they do it, but some black shows, there's always there has to always be some sort of, like, growth and yeah. happy ending. Yeah. And with Chewing Gum, she still lives in the flat. Yeah. Like, at the end of it, she still lives in the flat. Her friends are all working class. That's okay as well, and I think that's important to have, like, a diversity of um, lived experiences. Yeah. So I was glad that her character didn't, you know, all of a sudden go into the corporate world, you know, we yeah. so it's
0: still the same and that's important. Yeah, and that being like a signifier of winning, like winning at life and now this is a happy ending, this black person who has managed to, you know, walk up to the top of the ladder and is now working really hard and that, that's not an accurate representation of our people or our lives yeah. but also not, an, not something that is representative um, of the lives of many, many, many people. Mm.
2: Um So yeah, there's a few... Basically... Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, but you can also be sensitive to why we want to show an ideal side of, um, like, the black experience, because we're so used to seeing, like, this one-dimensional idea of blackness. So, when you do have a chance, you want to put your best foot (laughs) forward. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of sensitive as to why we want to do, like, aspirational shows and movies. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's the Black Panther effect, RIP Chadwick Boseman. It's why that movie made us feel really good and, you know, why it was such an important moment for us and actually an important movement for us despite it being part of Marvel and this big kind of Hollywood world. It was an important moment and there's no way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, There are a few themes in I May Destroy You that you um, have touched on. You've touched a little bit oh well this is what what you've spoken to me about you touched on friendships and mm. tell me a little bit about how you kind of experience watching those friendships
2: mm. well actually well I love the relationship between Arabella and Terry who mm. is her best friend um they've known each other since high school you know they've been through thick and thin and even though obviously you've only seen two episodes but what you find out is that, you know, they go through challenges, their friendship is challenged. Mm. But, um, yeah, I just love seeing black women on screen together. Mm. Like, I love seeing black women kicking. I love black women hugging up on each other. Um, Yeah, just just, just seeing that intimacy and that care and that love between them, like, we need to see more of that because often, like, we don't ever see that we all, like, the only friendships that we ever see are white women, you know, Mm. whether it's sex in the city, whether it's girls, And now we're kind of seeing black girls that we know, you know, like even their vernacular, even the way they joke around, that reminds me of us. And I was like, yes, I know those girls. And... um,
0: and even yeah. like black British girls, like that's a special kind of experience and relationship that we may not see as much of. We might see some African-American women friendships on the screen sometimes if we're if we're very lucky. And then so this oh. is like another experience that we see and we've watched some films like French uh, – you know, you and I have watched some this French film that does look at relationships between black girls but they're not sophisticated and they're not um, in-depth and sometimes – you know, we are always asking for a little bit more. But from the two episodes that I've seen, I absolutely love their dynamic. I think that they're like the best and two having two dark skinned black women as well is an important yeah. an important part of the story.
2: Apparently they both like when they were fifteen years old, they both started in Top Boy. The, the original Top Boy ah. series. Yeah. So that's kind of how they know each other. So I was like, wow, look at that. Both of them. You know, I think that, well, if there were 15 and seeing where they're at now, just, I love that for them, you know?
0: Um, how did you feel when, I think it was in the first episode when Arabella is in the office about to start r- writing her part of her book for the deadline and we hear some something great.
2: <laughs> oh my goodness. The first thing I did was grab my phone, record that, <laughs> upload it onto my Instagram. I was so
0: excited. <laughs> Me too. <laughs>
2: But it's weird because I didn't see Sampa promote promoter or anything like, I mean, that's what you expect artists that like anytime they're feature in a movie or a show, you expect them to, um, yeah, publicize that. But I had not seen that. So for me, I was like, wait, stampa It's amazing. And I just loved I loved seeing that, and every, obviously, you know, everyone loves Stampa.
0: yeah, And even
2: when we found out I' forgot her name, but the actress from she does the show Red Table. Jada Pinkett um, Smith? Jada Pinkett. Um, I should put some respect on her name. Oh I made seem like she was, like, some commercial actress. Allah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> let yes, me sorry. Just,
0: yeah, let Jada me Pinkett just redo Smith. that. Wow. No, no, you can't redo it. Queen, it's live. <laughs> what do you mean that actress who does Red Table? That's an entire oh decades girl. of career. Anyway, I'm not going to drag you. Uh, um, yes, Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. Absolutely love, loving Stampa, yeah. She loves
2: Stampa. Yeah. yeah, just seeing Stampa everywhere, I mean, who wouldn't
0: want that? Me, I know, absolutely. Who wouldn't want her? But it's just amazing that you said, you know, you didn't see it online and stuff. You know, like musicians, particularly when they kind of reached a level of success, probably have their music played in a whole heap of different shows and every mm. time it happens they probably can't just promote it. Um, Each and every time And so the fact that it was like a thing that was cool for her But it wasn't necessarily something that was going to go all over social media Is also kind of a beautiful, you know, message Um, about You know, where she is in her stage in her career But yeah, I was very, very excited I was like, yes, that's absolutely right And that is like my hype song Oh my gosh, it's such a beautiful hype song um, is that
2: the song that you appear in or is that, is that a secret girl? Disrespectful. Well, of course
0: it's not a secret, but anyway, <laughs> you also spoke to me about Netflix trying to kind of get one over her. Yeah. What was that story? Yeah.
2: Girl, they tried her. So, uh, um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, she, um, co-wrote, I mean, she wrote, co-directed, she did everything right. Mm. Um, so she, she had a meeting with Netflix and they offered her one million, which is, you know, as you know, is incredible. But then they didn't offer her full ownership, like full ownership rights. Yeah. And then she had to kind of like negotiate with them, and she even went down to like two percent a ratio. She, wow. she was like, okay, I know I'm not going to get full rights, but what about two percent? And they were like, uh, nope. And and then like as a way to like um, palicate her, they were like oh, you know, this is no big deal. This is, like, you know, this is mm. the standard. And she was like, okay, if it's not a big deal, then I'd like my 5% of rights, you know? Yeah. Um, but as you and I were discussing um, uh, off-air, this happened to Monique as well. Exactly. Like, n- Netflix has a habit of um, kind of exploiting uh, black creativity and, yeah. and just kind of, yeah, denying them full rights and creativity. It's... it's yeah, it's pretty bad.
0: It is pretty bad. And she didn't end up going with Netflix at the end, did she? Um, you no, know, Co- she, went, she went
2: with BBC yeah. and um, I think HBO. Yep. Um, and it's weird because <laughs> I Made a Story is about, like, like she's writing about exploitation on adults. Absolutely. And here Netflix is exploiting her. Like, After having watched him. it,
0: read it, I know, it's like, yeah, it's, sometimes feel like we don't all live in the same world. I am two episodes in and I've got 10 more episodes to go and I'm going to save each one because I know that I'm going to love it. I loved it from the first five minutes and mm, there's and every, been so many people yeah. who've re- recommended it and told me how much they love it.
2: It's incredible. I and Every episode is like its own like movie or its own show. It's so weird because even though they do talk about the sexual assault, like every episode covers a facet of, it's really interesting. It's, it's, Beautifully written. Yeah, and the
0: music is great. The music is um, great. I'm actually going to incredible. play a track from, I think it was the closing credits of the second episode. It's by Subculture. It's called The River Bend. And then we're going to come back and chat a little bit more about a few other things. If this conversation has caused any distress for you, you can jump on Life 9, 13, 11, 14 if you do want to talk to someone. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And I'm chatting with Ayan, who is giving us a little bit of an insight on some of the stuff that she's been watching, thinking about, engaging with in the last. Few weeks in lockdown, and we were just chatting about the TV show I May Destroy You, uh, written and co directed by Michaela Cole. You can j- check it out online. Now, I want to move on to something that is very near and dear to your heart, something that is very important to you. And every single time I ask you to recommend a couple of tracks to play on this show, there is always either a Brandy or Monica or both track in your little playlist. Tell me about this experience <laughs> on Instagram Live for you where Brandy, I guess, I don't know, played against versus Monica.
2: Girl, it was incredible. They took us to church. Listen, I knew I knew it was going to be fantastic when Kamala Harris made a Zoom appearance. I said, we're about to do this. Are we not? We are about to do this. And the thing was, like, I think everyone's just been waiting for them to... Like everyone's been waiting for them to do a duet, let alone a versus battle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, plus, the 90s is very dear to my heart, I reach. So I, I feel like, all, all the, like my entire playlist, I reach, is just 90s tracks. Because I feel like 90s tracks, I just feel good. I love mm. the slowness. I love the storytelling. So for me, they'll always have like a soft spot in my heart. Um, but, yo, the shenanigans. First of all, Brandy needs to just fall back a few steps. Let's just
0: pause for one let's pause for what? one second and give like a bit of context. So this so this Brandy and Monica thing is part of a like system on Instagram live that Timberland and Beats. Um, decided was something that we all needed but actually at the end of the day we did need so at the beginning of lockdown there was um, a bunch of different DJs and musicians jumping on their Instagram live usually kind of bigger name DJs and musicians and doing and performing for free for people right and Mm. that was like this cultural thing that was happening and it was really fun and then Um, Swizz Beatz and Timbaland, these two producers um, from, you know, who've been producing for like 50 years or something, um, decided that they're going to create this platform called Versus TV where they would bring two different musicians um, and they would get them to verse each other in, but but in like friendly competition, in like Mm. a battle of hits, right? And so we've seen like a bunch of different um, musicians. We've seen like... A lot of different, like including like Lil Wayne, I don't know, T pain and like Lil Mm. John. And like, so there's been a real kind of baby face. Exactly. So there's been a wide variety of black artists who have been represented. And this week was, or last week was Brandy and Monica. It's all on Instagram Live. The whole thing, the whole setup is on Instagram Mm. Live. It's also been known to have technical difficulties. There was actually one that had to be completely (laughs) cancelled and re. Redone because of technical difficulties, but this yeah. one seemed all right. So, because
2: that- Teddy was doing the most, oh my god, Teddy, Teddy had a hype man, Teddy had uh, like an entire set. Teddy I had producers,
0: like- he had directors. Ooh. Teddy Riley had a really big setup, and Babyface yeah. was literally in his studio with a microphone and iPhone headphones, yeah. not we'll even earbuds. Well. Yeah, of course. Very, very important. So, anyway, Brandy and Monica are like the next iteration of this project that mm. um, Swizz and Timberland think is really what's going to unite the entire world. So, just tell me mm. a little bit about, you know, a the build-up for you because I know you've been you were excited for it since it was announced, mm. and then actually mm. the experience. Yeah,
2: well, as you know, Rich, Brandy and Monica are like the sweethearts of the nineties, right? They're kind of a sim- kind of a similar age, but. I feel like Brandy had more of, like, a corporate um, support behind mm-hmm. her when Monica was kind of like the um, underdog. I mean, that's how I saw her, at least, in the 90s. So um, everyone has a person, right? For me, I love Brandy's songs, but I love Monica's attitude. Yeah. So for me, I was just I was waiting for the shade. I was waiting for the shade, and I was not disappointed. I was waiting for, like, some of my favorite songs, including um, sitting on top of the world. Um, so gone. Well, did they play so gone? No, they played uh, angel of mine. Um, I bawled my eyes out when Brandy played, um, have you ever, because listen, that's a breakup anthem. Um, so for me, I was just like, yo, this is going to be like my nineties dream duo. And yeah, so I called Faye who I've known since like we were in grade three and, um, her and I were, like, amping each other up. We were even making lists of songs that we were hoping they'd play. (laughs) So there was, like, a lot of momentum behind this. And, um, yeah, when they kicked off, I was like, oh. But it's it's so funny because everyone in my house, like, my sisters um, were also raised in the 90s. So for them, they had that same um, love and adoration for Brandy and Monica. So in our house, there were speakers coming from each room. and every and my phone was lagging, so every time a song would come on, my sisters would hear it a few seconds before I did. So I'd hear screaming, and I'd be like, "What song is that?" It was so good. I mean, um, and then everyone was in the comment section, like even those, like Michelle Obama was in the mm-hmm. comment section. Mariah Carey. Yes. Um, so I feel like this brought so many people together, mm-hmm. and, and they gave the fans what they were looking for.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't just you and your sisters who were into it. There was like millions of people, like the probably the highest versus battle ever. I think it actually officially was the highest number of people who were at a versus battle, um, and they were on IG Live for all of that time. Like that is not a small a, feat to have millions. Like, That's like the biggest concert you could ever have ever.
2: You know, and that and, and just goes to show you that 90s um, artists still have – like a push, yeah. not a push, sorry, um, uh, an appeal. And it's just about giving them chances. And I'm so upset that no one thought, like, I knew it was going to be great. Yeah. And, but, you know, you can just imagine all these, like, 90s artists who are kind of, you know, had been forgotten mm-hmm. and uh, just had been put on the shelf. And, you know, it's, it, it's just about. I don't know, it's just about giving them opportunities, you know, um, and, and you know, how, how it is with black artists. Yeah. Like, they have their moment and they're kind of forgotten about. So it was good to see that Monica and Brandy can bring in the numbers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. I started watching it, Ayan, and then I actually had to stop. Like I physically couldn't watch it, and I know that you love and don't mind the cringe, but Ooh, the shade yeah. from Brandy towards Monica was actually a little bit too much for me. Like you, you know, I can't handle it. So no. I just—it made me feel ill, and I had to switch it off. It was to
2: that extent. What every first of all, you know, I love that. I'm so I know happy you, that do. you acknowledge that. That oh, I love that the awkwardness. It was so was, awkward. The thing with Brandy was, she was like trying to hold herself. Like she, she, she's a child star. And for her, you know, she had Winnie Houston as mm-hmm. like her godmother. So she's very Brandy much an about angel. like yeah. being a perfectionist, right? Mm-hmm. So she was very much like, no, I don't want to sing. Where Monica would like jump off the chair and start <laughs> singing. And um, yeah, but Brandy, I think Brandy, Brandy is somebody who can't read a room. No. She's very much like, at the end of each song, like they kind of, I mean, you're expect, like, it's expected that they finish off their song. When it was Monica's turn to finish off her song, Brandy would finish off for her, and you're like, but, sis, you don't want to finish your own songs, but you're finishing off Monica's songs?
0: Someone else's. percent. Like, 100%. 100. Are you okay? Yeah. Like, what is going on? It was uncomfortable. But, um, it was, like, I pers—I know you love that, and I know a lot of people love that, but, like, the banter that's expected between songs for me became so uncomfortable that I actually had to switch it off. I couldn't watch it anymore, oh, and I just, like, it was to that extent. And I actually was talking with another friend who, who said the same thing. So and
2: Brandy pulled a book. No, big, I don't know why she. Just reading poetry, like um, sharing her song. I was like, what are you doing? Monica, <laughs> when this the mother, it was like, what the hell, Dr. Bradley? Like, who asked you? to bring a poetry book, <laughs> like, nobody requested <laughs> it. Nobody, nobody requested
0: it, but also, like, it's Brandy, so she's actually just going to do that, and that's just the way that it is, and we love and respect mm. it. Um, you were starting to cut out a little bit, so I'm thinking we might leave it at that, but I'm going to play oh, okay. two tracks. This one is The Boy Is Mine, and then the one after it is another one that you chose, which is just Don't just Take It Personal. I think I'll start with The Boy Is Mine, and then we'll kind of move our way through. But Ayan. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all of your thoughtful insights about all of these things that have been helping you cope with lockdown. Go, bye. Malala is a musician and DJ who's just dropped a new single called Thirty and made a mix for us to enjoy that I'll be playing a little bit later. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad. It's really nice. I say this on air often, but this is like my weekly getaway from my five kilometer area. So I have a little oh. thing to let me out like, and <laughs> go through the checkpoints to find myself in Brunswick East and, and then I'm here and it's like my weekly outing. It's great. Love that. Feels so good. (laughs) So tell me about this single, 30. You've released a few things I've seen on your SoundCloud and 30 was just dropped recently. Tell me a little bit about it.
3: Just like kind of about being from the west side, like, Mm. you know, being from the 303s. Like I grew up in like western suburbs and I feel like I haven't heard a lot of stuff coming out about being from the West, because I feel like sometimes, you know, people talk down on the West and stuff. So it's just kind of like celebrating being like, you know, a girl from the
0: West. We love it. Pookie has just dropped a single called Tuesday, and in it... They, they have like a line about being, you know, from Footscray in Footscray and then like names a few Western suburbs in that. That's a, a single that was literally tro- dropped last Tuesday. So I'm feeling a theme of like, you know, appreciation and love from the West coming out.
3: Yeah, we have to love the West. Like I think, like, you know, they say the West is best. Like that's the like <laughs> motto of the West side. I really do feel like it's true. The West is the best.
0: I I agree. I'm not from the, I'm not from Western suburbs, um, but lots, listen, love and respect to Western suburbs, but also so much of my family live in the Western suburbs, right? It's very kind of like densely populated by Africans and other yeah. like communities of color, First Nations people, um, mm. other like immigrant communities. So we kind of do make the West really hot.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you've got a few um, tracks on your SoundCloud. There's also um, a couple of mixes, a mix or two on there, and um, people can follow you on socials. Yeah. Tell the people where they can check out all of your stuff and what they can, um, what they have to search. All
3: right. So on everything you have to search, it's Malalo. So I T S m u l a l o and that's on soundcloud and instagram I don't have a spotify or apple music yet that's coming but that's yes yeah. if you follow me on instagram soundcloud like once everything starts popping off you know
0: we'll be yeah. we'll be awaiting it very very excitedly Yay. Um, <laughs> um how are you doing with all of this iso stuff are you making more music is it kind of a little bit? harder for you to DJ or what's the situation going for? Yeah, How's it going so,
3: for you? Yeah, it's you know not so crazy. Like, I really started pushing, like, myself. Uh, my friend Neil also started pushing me to actually start rapping and, like, actually making music because of isolation because, mm-hmm. like, we, didn't, we couldn't really go out and do anything else. So all of these songs that I've made have come in this isolation period and I don't think they would have come if it wasn't for the lockdown. And all of that, so, yeah, like, I'm kind of not thankful, but, like, a little bit
0: thankful it's that an, I had It's it. an outcome, right? Listen, yeah. it, it was not in your control, but it's a thing that happened, and that's also fine for it to be a good thing. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I think that that is amazing. I think a lot of people are being forced to do stuff that maybe they have been, like putting aside or pushing aside yeah, because maybe they didn't have exactly. time or, you know what I mean? And so now it's like you've got an abundance of time or you've just got to try it and then you realise you love it. It's, it. It does feel good. I think it's amazing. Exactly. Awesome. You just
3: have to try things. I feel like I started knitting and doing all these different yes. things that I've always said I was going to try and never did, but now I'm
0: trying. to We love it. We love it. I'm going to play um, 30 now and then you'll awesome. be back to tell me a little bit about the mix. Awesome.
3: Awesome.
0: You put together this mix for us, which I'm very, yeah. very, very, very grateful for. I love there's been a bunch of different local DJs who have put together some pre-recorded mixes, which, you know, maybe is not as fun as doing it in front of a crowd. But despite mm-hmm. all of that, you have done that for us. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about it, what you were thinking, where you were at when you put it together.
3: OK, like <laughs> uh, I love my rap. Like, I feel like girls around the world, you know, period. Like, the girls around the world, especially with rap right now, like, you know, there's so many girls coming out. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to play all my favourite yeah. female rap songs for 20 minutes and throw in some of
0: songs. And um, I loved it. I loved every moment of it. Actually, you sent it through yesterday early in the morning, and I was listening to it while I was sending emails, and I sent you an email saying, listen, I'm so hyped right now because I was just like definitely feeling myself but really just enjoying it. It's super hype. It's exactly what I needed to listen to while sending all these kind of work emails. So it is absolutely so much fun. If you feel like dancing, this is definitely the mix for it. You give yourself like a 20-minute break to enjoy that. I will give a language warning, a blanket language warning for the next 20 minutes and maybe I'll come back and reiterate the language warning. If you've got some kiddies and you don't want them to listen to it. Um although, you know, why not? It's up to you, but I don't know. I'm not mad at some kids listening to part of this. Um, exactly. But anyway, thank you so much. Thanks for all the music. Thanks for the mix. And we'll catch up soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Rap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.